0: chapter 5. If you haven't yet, Uh, it'll be around page 978 if you're looking at the Bible in the chair in front of you. Ephesians chapter 5. As you're turning there, I'll start off with how a lot of sermons start off is with a quote. I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Have you heard that before? Gandhi said that. Mahatma Gandhi uh, from, uh, from India. He, he said that, or at least some form of it. I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Now, not many, many sermons begin with quotes. Not many sermons begin with quotes from Gandhi. <laughs> and yes, this quote we could say, it's overly simplistic. I mean, we could pick it apart ad nauseum, but you know what? When we consider it and are honest with ourselves a lot of people share Gandhi's assessment. I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Now this past week, one member of our church told me about what he witnessed in church growing up. He said people showed up, gave money, sometimes went to confession, and they went on their merry way Monday through Saturday. Now if you witness that and eventually wake up to it, eventually you'll begin to ask, what's the point? And you'll conclude, let's just drop the act and move on with our lives. You see, when Christians don't live like Christ, it deters people away from Christ. That was true for Gandhi. That was true for many of our own stories growing up. And that was true for the Christians in Ephesus also. The Christians in Ephesus had the same context as many of the other early Christians, they were a tiny minority in an overwhelmingly pagan city. And not only that, but this tiny minority carried massive claims with them. They claimed that this Jewish man, Jesus, is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the resurrected King of the universe. And these claims, not just that, these claims led them to live in Because of this, their claims and their lives, the people around them would keep a very close eye on them. And so that means, as one commentator concludes, the reputation of what they believed was bound up in how they lived. This is why Paul admonishes the Ephesians and us also to walk wisely in the world. Because if we don't, we will undermine the very message we claim to believe. But friends, there's a problem. And you know as well as I do that wise walking doesn't just happen. Even for Christians, we do not drift toward it. Not only must we work at it, but we also need help outside of ourselves. That's the big point I think Paul is driving at in Ephesians 5, verses 15. Wise walking doesn't just happen. Not only must we work at it, but we also need help outside of ourselves. Let's read these verses. You can follow along as I read. Look carefully then at how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. We'll break down the call to walk wisely in three points. We walk wisely by walking in carefulness, by walking in God's will and by walking in the spirit. First, we walk wisely by walking in carefulness or by walking carefully. This is verses 15 to 16. The assistant to the regional manager of the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company, Scranton Branch, Dwight Schrute, said that the most inspiring piece of advice he ever received was don't be an idiot. Dwight Church says, whenever I'm about to do something, I think, would an idiot do that? And if they would, I do not do that thing. (laughs) If only our decisions were so simple. We read verse 15, it says, look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. It seems so simple. It seems so obvious. Why do we need a piece of advice like this? Well, friends, we need carefulness because we are so often overconfident in our own ability, morality, and strength. We need carefulness because we so quickly disregard dangers, challenges, and temptations. I mean, how better off would so many of us be if we just listened to our moms more often when they told us, be we need carefulness, friends, because we, ex- we selectively apply carefulness. You think about the areas of our lives where we're very careful. We take care never to miss a payment. We take care never to miss a meal. We take care never to miss a deadline. All these are good things. But we don't take the same care to walk wisely, You see, Paul tells us to walk, to be careful, to walk wisely because he knows how great of a capacity we have to walk unwisely. Paul knows where we drift left to ourselves. And as the passage continues, Paul knows that we drift not toward making the best use of the time. We drift toward wasting time. We don't drift toward walking in God's will. We drift toward walking in our own will. We drift not toward walking in the spirit. We drift toward walking in our own strength. So, friends, before we proceed in this passage, we have to admit, we have to acknowledge, we have to have the humility to say that we can be careless and that we need help. We have to say that from the outset. So what does carefulness look like? it's required to walk wisely, what does carefulness look like? Well, perhaps a story will help. Now, at the point of the incident, I lived in my house for about two years, and I did the math. That's 730 days. It's really hard math. Uh, Each one of those days, I parked my car in the garage. So let's say on average, I backed out of my garage once a day. So that's over 700 times I backed my car out of the garage. So just a pretty normal process. You start it, you shift to reverse, you back up, and you are on to your destination. And over 700 times, I never had any issues. Nothing ever happened. Can you sense what's coming? (laughs) (laughs) One day, my friend Luke comes over. We decide, hey, we're going to be economical, and we are going to drive together to dinner. So he parks in my driveway. And I did what I had done over 700 times. Started it, shifted reverse, just backed up, and bam, right into his car. (laughs) I never had an accident at that point. And that marked down as an accident on my insurance claim. I was not careful. Even though I did something over 700 times, I was not careful. I was careless. You see, carefulness is active discernment. Carefulness is active discernment. It's easy to be passive. It's easy to act automatically. It's easy just to do what we have always done. It requires effort to think each time before we act. It requires effort to think before we speak. Husbands, testify. It requires effort to be present in each moment and with each person you're around. The active discernment of carefulness, it's not just proactive though, it's not just something that we do on the front end of how we walk. The active discernment of carefulness is also reactive. You see, it's easy never to challenge ourselves, it's easy never to examine ourselves. It requires effort to review how we've been walking. We must actively discern whether or not we are walking wisely. We must actively discern, as Paul continues in verse 16, whether or not we are making the best use of the time. Now, verse 16, some translations will say redeeming the time. This carries the sense that we buy it back from being wasted. We buy back time wasted. You see if we are not careful not only will we not walk wi- wisely we will waste time. So carefulness looks like spotting and removing all that prevents us from walking wisely and all that prevents us from making the best use of the time. So maybe we can run through what this might look like for us as individuals. It's just simple questions. What does a typical week look like for you? What are your patterns, routines, tendencies? Do you go through these thoughtlessly? Or do you go through these carefully? Are there ways you are not walking wisely? Are there ways you are not making the best use of the time? Now, I think if we're honest, the answer is yes for everybody in this room but our yes answers are going to come in different shapes and sizes. Some of us aren't careful about how much entertainment we consume. That's kind of the softball one, right? Others of us aren't careful about how busy and active we let ourselves be. Others still aren't careful to avoid sins like those Paul listed in uh, chapter 5, verses 1-4 the section we considered last week. Some of us aren't careful to avoid those sins like sexual immorality, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, covetousness. Other of us still aren't careful to seize opportunities to care for and love the people we're around every day. Are you making the best use of the time? Are you careful to walk wisely? In the three-part documentary about Bill Gates, it's called Inside Bill's Brain. It's on Netflix. Um, his secretary, at the very beginning of the documentary, she explained how she crafts and manages Bill Gates' schedule. And Bill Gates' schedule is carefulness on steroids. Oh, my goodness. Every minute is accounted for. She said that Gates understands that time is one commodity that he can't buy more of. That Bill Gates He knows that he has the same 24 hours in a day as everybody else has. But friends, we have to be careful in how we talk about carefulness. We want to talk about it in a distinctly Christian way, not just in a business productivity way. You see, one difference between Christian carefulness and Bill Gates' carefulness is what motivates us. And that comes out, I think, in at least two places in verses 15 to 16. Motivation for carefulness comes out first in the word then in verse 15. You see it there? It says, look carefully then at how you walk. Paul does this all the time. It's his way of pointing back to what he just wrote. Now, Paul Morrison said that last week throughout the letter, Paul tells the Ephesians how they should walk. It's one of Paul's favorite verbs. So the previous section, he tells the Ephesians in verse 1 of chapter 5 to walk as children of God. He tells them in verse 8 to walk as children of light. This gives us an insight. It tells us the only way we'll walk wisely is if God has already made us his children. He has done that for those who trust in Christ's sacrifice for them. So that means, friends, true wise walking is living out who God has made you to be in Christ. So the motivation, we can boil it down, it looks like this. God has made me new in Jesus. Now I want to be careful to live like it. Now our motivation for carefulness comes out secondly at the end of verse 16 see a because phrase. It says, because the days are evil. Not only does Paul know that we do not drift toward careful, wise living, he also knows that there is an obstacle outside of ourselves. He says the days are evil. Now, this does not mean that time itself is evil. It means that what rules over our present time is evil. We can flip back to chapter 2, verse 2. According to that verse, we walk according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The world shares Satan's core agenda to put itself in the place of God. So friends, the point is our surroundings do not spur us on to walk wisely after Christ. They spur us on toward the opposite Through crafty and deceitful schemes, as Paul says earlier, our surroundings spur us on to do nothing that compromises our autonomy and our control.
1: All the more reason, friends,
0: why we must be careful to walk wisely after Jesus. Let's transition to verse 17. Here you glance at the verse and it seems like Paul is saying the exact same thing. But then he adds something new. So we see his logic is that if God calls us to walk wisely, then we shouldn't walk foolishly. Makes sense. Instead, here's the new part. We should walk in God's will. So second point, we walk wisely by walking in God's will. Now, God's will is a very churchy phrase. And we'll get to its definition in a moment. But I want to cover again why we need it. God's will. I, I suspect that some of us acknowledge our need for God's will, but we function as to defaulting to our own. We submit to God's will only when we've lost control of our own, only when our own plans kind of go awry. You no, know, we should use those moments when our, when our plans go awry as God's gracious reminders that we were never in control in the first place. We need to understand and live out God's will because, left to ourselves, we make a mess of everything. Left to ourselves, we make a mess of everything. This is why we need God's will. Now, the whole Bible illustrates this point, but I think if there's one book that really illustrates it, it's the book of Judges. And maybe I think, think of that because I've been reading Judges recently. And once, one of the wild, messy stories from the book of Judges is the story of, about this guy called Micah. It's not the same as the Micah the prophet, Micah was this guy, it just opens randomly, it says, like, he's this guy who happened upon some silver that was taken away from his mother. So he goes up to his mom he's like, Mom, I've got your money back, uh, and now what should we do with it? They decided together they were going to take part of this silver and dedicate it to the Lord. Seems good so far. And the way they would dedicate it, the way they decided it was best to honor God with this silver that was found, was to make a little statue God and to set up their, basically their own religion. That's how they were going to honor God with this silver. Apparently, they forgot the second commandment <laughs> as well as the golden calf incident. But it gets even messier. You see, this northern tribe of Israel, Dan, they just happen upon Micah's property. And uh, more than that, they pawn off Micah's priest that he's been using. So Micah... He finds a Levite, a guy who's supposed to be a priest of the living God. And he tells this priest, this Levite, hey, I'm going to give you a bunch of money to be my own priest. The priest takes the lucrative deal. And then this whole tribe that happened upon Micah's property, they give this priest even a sweeter deal. And he goes with them. And so this whole tribe of Dan, they take Micah's God and they worship it themselves. It is wild. There's a tagline at the end of the story that comes in so many of the stories in the book of Judges. It says, in those days, Israel had no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Left to ourselves, we will make a mess and head straight toward death. Might not seem like it right now. Everything might seem all right. Consider that might be God's gracious protection, common grace on your life. We need God's will because it is the course that leads to life. It is the path God has made for our flourishing. It is the beginning of wisdom. God's will is what we must do. God's will is what we were made to do. So, we need to be careful, not just to do our best version of our own morality. We need to be careful, as Paul says, to understand God's will. So how do we do that? What does it look like? Well, let me tell you what it is not. It is not as the ancients would do. It is not reading the intestinal entrails of a dead animal, as many ancient pagan religions did. Understanding God's will is not reading palms or tarot cards as psychics do. Understanding God's will may be a little bit closer to home. Understanding God's will is not following your heart as the Americans do. Understanding God's will looks like understanding what God has revealed to us. Understanding God's will looks like understanding what God has revealed to us. Paul's already spoken about this to the Ephesians. He's spoken about God's plans. He has said God planned or willed from the foundation of the world to save a people. God planned to show off his glory and wisdom by uniting Jews and Gentiles through a common faith in Christ. God planned to unite all things in Christ. This is God's will. Understanding God's will then means living in light of God's plan to make all things new in Christ. Living in light of God's plan to make all things new in Christ. Now what happens when we understand that? When we try to apply it? What we consider, this is a plan that is bigger than you. Understanding that gives us perspective. God's plan in Christ is also a plan that includes you if you trust in Christ. Understanding that gives us hope for the future. God's will in Christ is a plan already begun in Christ's death and resurrection. Understanding that gives us peace. God's plan in Christ will soon culminate in Christ's return. Understanding that part of it Gives us urgency to represent Christ well. What does it look like to understand God's will? It means understanding what God has revealed to us. Paul's talked much about that in Ephesians, but we can even broaden out beyond Ephesians. Remember Psalm 119. The psalmist asks, How does a young man keep himself pure? By guarding it according to your word. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy. That through scripture, God equips us for every good work. Consider that there are places in the Bible where it straight up says, this is the will of God for your life. John 6, verse 40, Jesus uh, Jesus is speaking. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Oh friend, if you have not trusted and submitted your life to Christ, That is literally the first step of walking in God's will. Another place where scripture tells us plainly what God's will for our lives is, famous one, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Understanding God's will is understanding what God has revealed to us. So if we are to be careful to do this, then let's have two foundational habits in place. You won't be surprised by these. The first is preach the gospel to yourself every day. And moment by moment, frankly, preach the gospel to yourself. Remember this grand plan of God in Christ. Remember how Jesus took your place. Remember what this gospel shows about God Remember what it shows about how God now sees you. Remember how it shows who God has now made you to be. And remember how you should live in light of this gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. But the other foundational habit, and these two reinforce each other, immerse yourself in scripture. To understand God's will, preach the gospel to yourself and immerse yourself scripture you know i i use the word immerse intentionally because we need more than just casual passes by the word we need to steep in the word like a good cup of tea so friends there are plenty of helps for us to do this i I would encourage you to get started use a quality um, daily devotional a good one to get started perhaps is paul david tripp's new morning mercies Use an audio Bible if you have a hard time reading. Uh, There's a great app on your phones you can download called Dwell, or the YouVersion app on your phone has an audio audio Bible as well. But I would say more than that, to immerse yourself in Scripture, don't treat church so casually, but engage. Because this is what we are trying to do together, to immerse ourselves in Scripture in order to understand God's will. So Engage in community group, engage in course seminars, in men's and women's groups, in sermons and songs, so that together we are preaching the gospel to ourselves and immersing ourselves in scriptures so that we understand God's will and live it out. These are good foundations to understand the will of the Lord. So this review, we walk wisely by walking with carefulness. We walk wisely walking in God's will but you know if we left it here we'd risk thinking that as we are traveling down this road we know that we got started because God made us new but we, if we left it here we'd risk thinking that now it's all on us as we continue down this road and the last point reminds us that it's not if we are to walk wisely not only must we walk in carefulness not only must we walk in the will of the Lord we must walk the spirit. This is the last point. Now next to Christmas, I ask permission for this. Next to Christmas, my wife's favorite holiday is April Fool's Day. (laughs) She will remind me throughout the year that she schemes about how to trick me. And so that makes me very nervous. Uh, But I have my guard up this April Fool's Day. And it was toward the end of the day There weren't really any big tricks yet, so I was especially paranoid, Uh, but I just, I sat down, and I turned on the TV, but it didn't turn on. I tried again, and, you know, my Sherlock Holmes mind is going, Um, amateur Sherlock Holmes, so I, I released the hatch that covered the batteries, and lo and behold, they were gone, and I knew Kate, all the while, I could see her peering from me, waiting for me to let out an ugh and get up and get batteries. (laughs) The point is that trying to walk wisely after Christ without the Holy Spirit is like trying to turn on the TV without batteries in the remote. Without the Spirit, we will not walk carefully. Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What Paul implies there is that if we don't walk in the Spirit, we will gratify the desires of the flesh. Without the Spirit, we will not understand the will of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Now, Paul sets up our need to walk in the Spirit by way of contrast. He says that there is something else that can hack and take over our operating system. He says, being drunk with wine, in verse 18. Being drunk with wine, Paul says, will not lead to wise living. Being drunk with wine, instead, will lead to debauchery. point is that drunkenness it depresses your faculties it ruins your judgment it makes you lose control but just to give a little bit of context about paul's warning here and this contrast wine was the staple drink of the ancient mediterranean world like in many places in the world still there's not great access to clean water and so wine was often safer to drink But not only that, there were groups around the Ephesian Christians who would get drunk during religious festivals as a way to try to get closer to their gods. So it's fair to conclude that Paul didn't randomly choose wine to contrast being filled with the Spirit. I think it's fair to conclude that this must have been a relevant and real temptation for the Ephesians. And it is for us as well. And not just wine, brothers and sisters. We must resolve, along with Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, that yes, we have freedom in Christ, but we will not give ourselves over to be dominated by any other influence besides Christ. So yes, when someone is drunk, we say they are under the influence. Instead, we want to be under the influence of the Spirit. Now, what does that look like? Well, it begins, as Paul says in verse 18, by being filled with the Spirit. Again, this is curious. We have to ask questions about it. We wonder because the Spirit is supposed to already dwell in us. But if this is something that Paul calls us to do, then it must mean that we have some kind of part to play as to how much the Spirit fills us and how much the Spirit influences us. You know as well as I do that there are times when we submit to walking in the Spirit And there are other times when we resist the Spirit. As Paul put it earlier, we grieve the Spirit at times. So how do we be filled with the Holy Spirit then? Well, Church Father John Chrysostom was very helpful on this point. He points to the context of this passage, just what comes before it, verses 1 to 14. He says we can be ready for the Spirit's filling. This happens only when we have cleansed our souls of falsehood Anger, bitterness, sexual impurity, uncleanness, and covetousness. All those sins listed in the previous section. In other words, when we empty ourselves of sin, we prepare to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can get help from another similar passage, Colossians 3, verse 16. Paul exhorts us in that verse to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see, the spirit and the word are very closely connected. To obey the word and to surrender to the spirit, John Stott says, are virtually identical. So, how does the spirit fill us? When we empty ourselves of sin and fill ourselves with the word. Now, when we are filled with the spirit, we will walk wisely. And Paul gives some examples in verses 19 to 21. He gives us some examples. What does it look like to walk in the Spirit? Notice these results here. Glance at them, verses 19 to 21. See the contrast of being filled with wine. Instead of loss of control, the fruit of walking in the Spirit is self control. Instead of hampering our faculties, the Spirit enhances them. And so in verses 19 to 21, Paul shows at least three results about what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. First, it looks like loving praise. You see that there in verse 19. The Spirit leads us away from being consumed with ourselves, and instead, he gives us hearts that love others and love God. And this shows up in singing, Paul puts it. So I wonder, friends, where is your heart when we sing together? Do you sing just for you? Or do you sing for the people around you? You know that you can love and encourage others through your singing. And you may say, well, really? Because I kind of stink at singing. (laughs) Well, friend, I would encourage you, apply Buddy the Elf's mantra on Sunday mornings. He says the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. (laughs) It might seem strange, but you you might catch me sometimes that I'd like to turn around and look at everyone in the room when we sing. I do that because it reminds me that I don't worship God alone, that I worship God alongside brothers and sisters. So we think about uh, our loving praise that shows up in song, and Paul addresses there's a horizontal dimension to it, how we care for one another, but he also addresses the vertical dimension of it, that we want to sing from a heart that sincerely loves the Lord. So I wonder, I'll ask you again, do you have a heart that desires to sing to the Lord? Not just here, but like throughout the week, have a heart that desires to sing. Now, I know we go through different seasons of life, I know we have different temperaments. But the Christian life, friends, is, is not meant to be a drag, it is not meant to be a performance or an act. So pray that the Spirit would tune your heart to sing God's grace. Now, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? To walk in the Spirit? These are the results Paul gives in verses nineteen to twenty-one. It looks like loving praise. It looks second like thorough thanksgiving. Verse twenty. You look at verse twenty just as a little side note. Do you see the Trinity there? The Spirit leads us to give thanks to the Father in the name of the Son. Now, on our own, we live a life of grumbling and entitlement. The Spirit. Directs us to the Father and gives us, as cliche as it is, an attitude of gratitude. Now we thank God more than for just the material things and circumstances He's given us, blessings that those are. We thank God moment by moment for the blessings He gives us in Christ. These are the ones Paul discussed way back in chapter 1 at the very beginning of the book. Now we see that walking in the Spirit, thirdly, as a result of it, is humble submission. This is verse 21. Now, he uses this verse to transition to the next section. But his point here is that without the Spirit, we are brash. Without the Spirit, we are selfish. Without the Spirit, we are just overly assertive. But with the Spirit, Christ will be formed in us. Looking to Jesus, the Spirit makes us like Jesus. This is what Paul talked about to the Philippians when he called them to have the mind of Christ, this very point of humble submission. He writes in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is a good reminder that the wise walking that Paul calls us to live by is the life that was first lived by Christ Jesus is the one who said it is his will to do the father it is his food to do the father's will Jesus is called wisdom itself Jesus is wisdom personified Jesus is the one who prayed not my will but yours be done Jesus is the one who the spirit filled like none other who we see these results on display all the time, who loved deeply, thanked constantly, and set aside himself for the sake of others. The point is, friends, walking in the Spirit is walking like Jesus. Now as we conclude, if wise walking and living like Jesus sound like a little too high of threshold for you, if you're thinking, man, I, I, I already have trouble dealing with all that I got going on, let alone trying to do, be careful to walk well and know the will of the Lord, if this, if this sounds too much for you, I'd say you're right. And that's the point. That's why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, who he calls, As we carefully walk wisely in God's will, we pray that the spirit fills us so that it is no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives in us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace that you sought out unwise people, people who lived to themselves and made a mess of it, and you redeemed us, interposed your precious blood, And not just that, not only do we now have a standing with you, but you have made us new and set us on a new course. And not just left us to ourselves to do it, but have given us the Spirit. So by the Spirit, Lord, help us to be careful in how we live. Help us to understand what the will of the Lord is. And help us to live like Jesus. In his name we pray.